Welcome back to the program. I've often told the story of a newly minted teacher considering her first job. She had several offers, but in the end, it came down to two. One in a difficult, struggling inner city school district, the other in a very wealthy, upper middle class suburban enclave. She said that she felt like it was a decision between difficult students and difficult parents. In that choice, we come to understand one of the dilemmas of today's educational system, the extreme between parents who simply cannot engage in their kids' education, or parents like those portrayed as tiger moms or the Upper East Side mothers of primates of Park Avenue, who take helicopter parenting to a new extreme, who eschew failure for their children because it would reflect as failure on them. Worse yet, it generally reaches its apogee at precisely the time in middle school when kids most benefit from personal responsibility, social-emotional development, and yes, even owning their failure. We're going to talk about that failure today with my guest, Jessica Leahy. She's an educator, an author, and a speaker. She writes the bi-weekly column, The Parent-Teacher Conference, for the New York Times. She's a contributing writer to The Atlantic, and her new book is The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Is this a problem that has been going on for a long time, or is it somehow inherently related to the focus today and, and the past number of years on kids getting into the best colleges? Is, is there a direct link there? Well, I think there's a link there, but there, it's also a bigger problem than that. It's, it's related to a, a lot more than just testing or just, you know, the media telling us over and over again that, that colleges are getting more difficult to get into. You know, we have fewer kids now. We have kids later. People are getting more educated before they have children. Um, kids are more of an investment, both emotional and time of, uh, you know, of our time and also, you know, financially kids are expensive. And so, you know, and we're at a place in human history where, or in American history in particular, where we can't be sure that our kids are going to do better than we are. And that's stressful. We want our kids to, you know, to do well. And, and yet it's becoming more and more difficult to secure that for our children. And does the problem cross socioeconomic lines or is it really just kind of the upper class, the wealthier suburban neighborhoods that are dealing with this? It's most, it is most prevalent, obvious. Um, it, certainly the media tends to report on the sort of you know, Westchester County, Northern California, just outside of Boston, New England prep school problem, um, and certainly New York City as well. But, you know, it really is something that, that crosses uh, socioeconomic lines. The more I talk at schools, the more I'm finding that um, it's something that, that we're seeing, in, you know, in middle class schools across the country. You know, on the other hand, there is an issue that in really low achieving schools, you know, there's a lot of pressure on parents to be involved in kids' uh, school, and some parents just don't have the ability to do that because of, you know, their time is being eaten up by multiple jobs, that kind of thing. So while it's not as prevalent um, in those communities, it is a problem that does cross socioeconomic lines. And to what extent is it a problem for parents feeling that failure reflects on them if their kids fail? Well, you know, especially among very educated parents or parents that have been out in the workforce and done well and then left the workforce or, or cut back on, you know, their work time in order to have children, we don't get a lot of report cards on how we're doing as parents. You know, we don't get 
people coming in and saying, yes, good you, you know, your kids can make their own lunch, but, you know, here's what you need to work on. So the only way we have to check in on our own parenting is through our kids. And if our kids are getting good grades or if they're on the special traveling soccer team, you know, we look great. Our parenting looks fantastic. And it's really hard to to engage in something as important as parenting without any feedback from the outside world. And I think it's really tempting to grasp at straws. And those straws tend to be, you know, evidence of our children's performance. Of course, the other metric is is really how the kids do in life once they get out of school. And what right, are, what, but are, what are we, we can't seeing? look ahead to that. Right. <laughs> but what are we seeing as a general trend in terms of these kids that have been overprotected and protected from failure? Yeah, it's right now, you know, my book is out and at the same time a wonderful book called How to Raise an Adult is out by um by a former Stanford dean Julie Liscott Hames. And she talks a lot about what she sees at that end of things. You know, these kids that come to, you know, schools like Stanford and are just unable to um, get through the day, are unable to, you know, write competent emails to their professors, are unable to, you know, address an envelope. And, you know, I'm seeing, especially in middle school and high school, I see a lot of that. I see kids who have never, you know, go on these service learning trips to Ecuador and build houses, but at the same time, they don't even know how to pack their own lunch. They don't know how to address an envelope. So, you know, we have a weird uh, we have a weird emphasis on achievement right now, but not necessarily achievement in the things that matter to sort of day-to-day competence. How much of it is due in part to technology making certain aspects of all of this so much easier so that the, the focus for kids becomes somewhat different and somewhat away from those those basic functioning in life skills you're talking about? You know, I actually haven't, I don't really put much of the blame on technology. I think, you know, the interpersonal relationships we have in our family haven't really changed that much with the exception that maybe we are plugged into devices more often. You know, the stuff that we do as a family, if you're, you know, strategizing your time and you're trying to have dinner together or you're, you know, going from activity to activity together, I don't think technology changes very much of that. Um, You know, we still have to put the laundry in the laundry machine and, and, you know, the washing machine and know how to turn it on and know what works for, you know, what kinds of stains. I don't think that's changed a whole heck of a lot. I'm not sure that there isn't an app for that, but we'll we'll have to see. (laughs) I'm sure there probably is, but at my house it's called... Uh, writing it on the side of the machine in a white uh, in a uh, whiteboard marker, so right. that the uh, the instructions are always there, lest any of my boys forget. <laughs> How much of this is tied to the focus that we've seen over the past twenty years or so on self esteem and the importance of that? I think that's a really big part of it. The self esteem movement was a huge failure. If you Look at books like Gene Twenge's the, the Narcissism Epidemic. We have a situation where we tried really hard to insulate our kids from, you know, any of the barbs and, and hurts of people insulting them or saying that they're not good at something. We thought if we told them they were wonderful enough that they would believe it no matter what happened. And that's just not what's happened. Um, Carol Dweck's research on fixed and growth mindsets shows that the more we tell kids that they're inherently smart, inherently talented, inherently wonderful, the more nervous they get about messing those those labels up and the more hesitant they get about taking any chances. And we really screw them up that way. We set them up to not know how to take any intellectual or emotional risks. 
The other side of this is what goes on in schools and the process by which kids learn today and and Mm -hmm. really getting kids more and more engaged as opposed to really just focused on on testing and and that aspect of it. Talk a little bit about that as it relates to to this whole issue of failure. Sure. I mean, I think it's a a problem not just of testing or not just of, you know, college admissions. It's a a problem that we all tend to look at school right now about what we're concerned with is the product. We're concerned with the grade. We're concerned with the score. We're concerned with the honors. We're concerned with the trophy. And I, I think the problem there is that, you know, in everything we do and say and the way we act in front of our children, we reinforce the idea that that product is way more important than what they're actually learning. You know, we tend to ask, how did you do on that test, rather than how did, what did you learn today? Tell me about what you learned today. Explain to me what, um, you know, what a light year is, that kind of thing. Um, that focus on on product instead of process is disastrous for teachers. Any teacher will tell you that, you know, those days when kids are so absorbed in what they're doing that they don't move when the bell rings, those things are like gold to us, and we don't get those as often anymore because, you know, kids are so concerned with getting to the end, racing to the end, figuring out how they did, um, and that's that's really a problem for teachers. As there is more focus on, on things like project-based learning and, and engagement mm-hmm. of kids and kids working in groups, are we seeing better results as as a function of that? Yeah, I mean, all of the research shows that, mm-hmm. that small group learning or peer-to-peer learning has, shows far better results in terms of depth of learning and duration, how long we hold on to what we've learned. All of that works really, really well. But when I talk to teachers, and I know from my own teaching, you know, we tend to teach the way we were taught. And for many of us, that means lectures, you know, a teacher at the front of the room telling us what we're supposed to know. And, you know, teachers that were trained that way, you know, most of us have gotten pretty good at it, and that's what we're comfortable with. And so I was talking to a math professor recently who had switched over to small group learning, and I asked him how it went, and he said it went great. Everyone had learned a lot more. And I said, and how did you like it? And he said, I hated it. I miss lecturing. But at the same time, he couldn't deny that his students learned more deeply and learned a lot more durably this semester than they ever had before. And isn't that part of the problem? If it's difficult even for teachers to realize Mm -hmm. and accept this whole idea of deeper learning, small group learning, project-based learning, imagine how much more difficult it is for the parents who are Mm -hmm. just looking for metrics on the other side. (laughs) Right. Well, it's also difficult because I know the times I turn it over to my students and let them uh, lead each other in lessons, I feel like I'm not doing my job. I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I'm guiding, but I'm not jabbering on and somehow I'm feeling lazy. And, you know, there's also this problem where I'm afraid a parent will look at that and say, well, you're not doing anything. You're just there. My kid's teaching the class. Or, why aren't you giving more homework? Doesn't that mean that your class isn't more rigorous or it should be more rigorous? You should be giving more work. Um, our perceptions of what teachers do and how they do it needs to shift a little bit in order for us to fully appreciate what it really means to be a teacher. Um, American Radio Works right now has a great documentary out, um, a fantastic one, on what it really means to be a good teacher and how to learn to be a good teacher. And it takes a fundamental shift in our understanding of 
what that person in our kids' classroom does. Another aspect of this is this whole point at which failure becomes more, learning from failure becomes more and more important for kids. And Mm -hmm. it it often is in these middle school years, in these developmental (laughs) years, and it is at precisely that point often that parents become more and more focused on what college their their kid is going to get into and really success of the kid, whether it's in, in the classroom or in sports or anything else. Well, it used to be that we used to say, you know, once they get to high school, this is where it really goes on their permanent record. But now we're starting, parents are starting to believe that about middle school. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is and I, say, I write this in my book, and I, I, there's a lot of focus in my book on middle school for this reason. Middle school is a setup. We specifically ask kids to do things that they're not neurologically prepared to do. Kids don't have the executive function that they need in order to handle lockers and changing books over and time schedules and long-term projects and all of that stuff. And so really good middle school teachers know how to handle that, know how to help guide them through that. So when parents, you know, jump in and short-circuit that process by either not holding kids to consequences of late work, uh, that kind of thing, or doing the work for them, it completely short-circuits the learning process that middle school is intended to, to accomplish. Talk about that, the degree to which parents are getting involved in doing work for the kids. Um, well, it, you know, it's something I would encounter on a fairly regular basis. You know, I stopped allowing my students to work on their, their um, essays at home in my writing class because the parents' fingerprints were all over the writing. And it's so easy to see. I mean, it's not, by the time we get to know our students' writing, um, it becomes pretty clear when a sentence is not theirs. And it was just easier for me to say, okay, we'll only work on this in class because I just need all of the work to be your own. But then, you know, in high school, I get way more blatant examples than that. You know, examples like a parent writing a student's paper for them and being upset with me for holding her daughter to plagiarism um, accusations when it was the parent who actually wrote the paper and plagiarized. So, you know, it's all over the place uh, and in small and large ways, all the way down to, you know, the elementary school science projects. You know, our teachers are going to have to change what their perception of a a really well-done science project is, I think, because so many of them are definitely parent work that we're going to have to just shift our, our expectations back. And, and one of the things that becomes so clear in, in discussing all of this and looking at all that, that you write about is that so much has to change in the classroom, on the part of teachers, on the part of parents. This isn't one or two little fixes, that this is a pretty fundamental series of changes in order to mm-hmm. accomplish this. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the best place to start is to really start thinking about, two, well, to think about two things, to think about process over product, We've got to get some of, you know, it's really important to assess where kids are, but we can do that in a way that's more about learning. There's, you know, ways of assessing kids that affect the way we teach in the future and affect the way we um, instruct so that students understand that assessments are not high-stakes, summative, um, you know, examples of what they've learned, but ways to shift how we teach in the classroom. I think that's really important. And, And we need to role model for kids that, the process of learning something is more important than whether or not we achieve, you know, the an A or a, a trophy or whatever that thing is. 
But the other thing is I think parents and teachers need to start thinking more long-term. You know, day-to-day we're concerned with whether or not the homework looks perfect or whether or not every single problem on the math homework is correct, which is not how homework should be working in the first place um, if we're using it at all. You know, I think we need to really start thinking about what our long-term goals are in terms of in terms of raising competent kids who know how to do things on their own rather than, you know, everything is perfect on a day-to-day basis so that we can check off that box that says, yes, I was a good parent today. Um, that's that's going to be hard to do, but it's a fairly... It's a fairly simple thing in each moment to say, am I, am I going for long-term goals here or am I nitpicking and going for short-term goals? In your experience, how early does that need to start in terms of thinking about the overall competence of kids? You know, when, we first, when a kid first starts walking and they fall over, we don't say, oh, well, that's it. My kid's never going to learn how to walk. We say, <laughs> oh, no, get up and keep trying. You know, that's just how that works. But somewhere along the way, and I'm not sure exactly where that is, but usually it's when they go off to school, we start thinking in terms of, you know, oh, kids should be good at this right away, or they're just not good at it. And that statement, you know, um, my kid's just not good at math, that's, that's bull. We need to stop thinking in that way because we need to start using the word yet the way we say, you know, my kid's not walking yet. The expectation is, well, the kid falls over. They're not going to ever learn how to walk. Well, it should be the same thing with math. My kid doesn't know how to do fractions yet. It's not a matter of he's just not good at math. And and we tend to saddle a lot of kids with that he's just not good at, she's just not good at, um, in the hopes that we just don't have to face that sometimes it takes some work. And the problem is we're robbing kids from that understanding, that Carol Dweck growth mindset, understanding that the harder we work, the smarter we become. The harder we try to do things, the more likely we are to be able to do them. Somehow that's getting lost, um, both in what we say and in what we do, and and that's a real crime. And of course, what happens also is that the kids hear this, they, they intuit it in many cases, and buy into that argument that they're not good at math or they're not good at this or that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I did. I, I've written about the fact that I actually retook Algebra 1 when I was in my 40s because <laughs> I happened to have free time in my schedule um, when I was teaching middle school. And I had always been one of those just bad at math people. I'd always accepted that. And, you know, I'm, I'm really got angry about that because someone told me that along the way and I came to believe it. And you know what? It's not true, actually. Um, I really liked algebra when I took it for my own reasons. And I really liked it when I had a teacher who, you know, because she was a colleague, she, you know, thought the harder I worked, the better I'd become at it. And you know what? The harder I worked, the better I became at it. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with some inherent thing in my brain. It had to do with my effort. And, you know, that's not always going to be the case, but it's the case far more often than we tell kids. Talk a little bit about teachers and the difference in, in this approach and what you're seeing between younger teachers and older teachers. And are, are younger teachers approaching this differently, or are they carrying on the same problems that we've been talking about? You know, I'm really hopeful. Um, whenever I go speak somewhere, especially when I talk to teachers and parents, I, I ask them to raise their hand if they've read Carol Dweck's uh, Mindset, which I think is an essential mm-hmm. piece of reading for parents and teachers in understanding, you know, th- what we say to kids and what we convey through our actions to kids. 
really sets them up either to believe that they can work and, and try to become better or that they just are the product of, you know, their genetic talent and that's it and, and that there's no getting around that. And, you know, I'm really hopeful that that kind of language, um, as more and more teachers are reading about that stuff, as more and more teachers are understanding that there are these things called desirable difficulties that help kids learn. If things are a little bit harder to learn, if there are a few little... Uh, tweaks to the material so that they have more opportunities to figure out the rules on their own. Kids will learn stuff more durably. Um, there was an incredible book last year called Make It Stick, which is, I think, one of the more important books out there in terms of education. And more and more teachers are being required to read that stuff. Um, rather than just being thrust in the classroom um, to sort of sink or swim. Um, their teacher prep, I think, is slowly changing, which I'm, I'm optimistic about. Not a lot of people are, but I'm trying to be optimistic about it. I think understanding a growth mindset and understanding the importance of teaching kids that effort is a part of intelligence, not separate from. I think that that'll that'll help, I think. The corollary to that is also the the social emotional intelligence and and the importance mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, I mean social emotional intelligence and and understanding um, the importance of perspective taking and empathy, all of that is going, you know, that helps in so many different ways. Everything from helping boys uh, be less violent, you know, being uh, understanding empathy and being able to take perspective on other people's um, reasoning is really important to helping boys express emotion. It's important to so many aspects of what goes on in the classroom that I think, you know, while I don't think social-emotional intelligence and, and a focus on that in the classroom is going to solve all of our problems, I think it's it's going to go a really long way to helping kids understand their classmates, understand one of the big things that teachers have to be able to do is understand why other, why students are getting problems wrong. And that's all about perspective taking. And when we help kids, when we pull kids into the process and say, do you understand why you got this problem wrong in one way and why your classmate over here got it wrong in a different way? How could you help each other understand your mistakes? That's incredibly important for for kids to learn how to be empathetic, and it's also great for teaching. So the more we understand that, the more we understand the importance of understanding how other people think in the classroom and and how that's good for learning and for our emotional well-being. I think that's going to only help teaching. It's also important in terms of real-world experience for the kids, ultimately. Mm -hmm. I mean, we hear from the business community all the time about these skills, these collaborative skills, these social-emotional skills that so many even very successful students today are lacking when they go into an inherently collaborative workplace today. Well, you know, teams tend to be the way that people are working these days. And, you know, team having, you know, intra, um, I, I'm going with cross-curricular because I'm in an emo- educational headset today, but headspace today. But when you have teams that are across different disciplines, um, you have to be able to understand other people and listen to other people's points of view on things that you have very differing perspectives on. Um, so uh, helping kids understand that perspective taking, helping kids play devil's advocate and write a paper from a perspective that they absolutely do not believe in so that they can learn how to be convincing when it comes to an argument they're not necessarily buying into in their own heart and soul. All of that's really important for them to be able to um, have patience and have uh, empathy for other people's 
perspectives. That's that's going to be absolutely essential. Plus, you know, we we've been accused. The United States has been accused of of educating kids who can't think creatively and can't think in an innovative way. And so much of being innovative has to do with listening to people from other disciplines. And I think we can get a heck of a lot better at that. Um, in, you know, on our way to becoming uh, having a better educational system. What needs to happen in terms of of colleges? in the context of what we're talking about. Because as we touched on earlier, destination college is really so much of what is driving a lot of this. Yeah. I, I was funny. We were talking about this yesterday with my older child, who's almost 17, and thinking about, you know, what college is supposed to be. Um, you know, college used to be, at least, you know, 20 years ago, college was something I went to in order to figure out what I wanted to mm-hmm. do. I wasn't expected to know what I wanted to do when I left home at 18. And more and more, I'm I'm hoping that this idea of a liberal education can come back, because I think the number of kids who know what they want to do when they head out of the house, who actually end up doing that thing, is so small. Um, but we don't really give kids an opportunity to explore anymore. And we sort of expect that not only will we know where they want to go to school, we'll know what they want to major in, and we'll know what classes they want to take and what they want to specialize in, and and that's just so unfair. Um, That opportunity to explore, you know, we we deny them that even early on when we say, no, you know, you've been doing soccer for three years, and if you want to make that traveling team in three years, you've got to stick with soccer. We don't have time for you to try other things. I think that's a huge disservice. That time for exploration is so important, and college is a big part of that. We talked a little bit about middle school. Talk a little bit about high school, which in so many ways is is become the most traditional part of K-12 education. It was a, a, an area that should be the most uh, experimental in so many ways. You know, I think there's there are a couple of different things happening. You're absolutely correct. It is becoming more traditional in the sense that we're really um, we're really looking at a college track um, as being the standard. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I think we're seeing a renaissance in vocational schools, which I think is fantastic. Um, we're starting to realize that certain industries in this country are seeing um, we don't we don't have enough people who can weld. We don't have enough people who can do plumbing and that kind of thing. And then we're having these great crossover. Um, industries like robotics and engineering, which, you know, if you want someone to, there was a a fantastic um, documentary, again, through American Radio Works called Ready to Work, Mm -hmm. where they explored what it really means to be an engineer. And more and more parents are saying, well, if I want my kid to be an engineer, I could send my kid off to learn all of the stuff that's abstract knowledge about engineering, or I could send my kid to a place like Minuteman Technical School, and they could actually start becoming an engineer while they're still in high school if they want to, and learn those skills and apply them. So while you're correct, I think uh, secondary school is becoming more, you know, traditional and specialized and that kind of thing, we are ending up in this place with more project-based learning, more problem-based learning, more hands-on application of skills, and sort of a resurgence, a renaissance in this vocational education, especially through maker spaces and robotics labs and things like that, where I think, I, I again, I am optimistic. I think we're going in a place where we could see more application of, of knowledge rather than um, an insistence on abstract knowledge that's never going to be applied to anything. And as we look around the world at some of the, the vaunted educational systems in places like Sweden or Denmark, 
What do we learn from that? What do we see? Well, I think we've learned a couple of things. We've learned, number one, that some countries are doing things better than we are, and that doesn't necessarily always um, bear out in testing. If you look at some countries, for example, you know, Korea, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that I, I would want our system to look more like Korea's. And on the other hand, then you have a place like um, Finland where people are so excited about what's happening there, but there are problems there as well. I think what we're, what we like to do in this country is, is exalt one system over another or hold one up as the best. But I don't know that there is one best right now. I think there are elements that we could really take from Finland's example, and there are elements that we could take from Korea's example, and there are elements we could take from Japan's example. And some of those, a lot of those, have to do with teacher training. Um, one of the things that Scandinavian countries do so well is train their teachers thoroughly and well and uh, hold them up as really important um, members of society. And that's something we do not do here. It's something we really failed at in this country is um, seeing the wealth of te- in teachers and compensating them fairly and also listening to what their needs are when we restructure our educational system. Uh, we tend to not listen to the uh, teachers in that forum, and, and that's a huge mistake. So I think really valuing teachers understanding what it takes to teach teachers well, to teach teachers in a way that really affects good, durable, long-term learning in the classroom is something is the very first place we need to start. And finally, as we look at, at other systems and other places, you're talking about it with, with regard to teachers. What about parents? What do we see in the way parents are approaching education in some other places? You know, I talked about Korea before, and one of the things that I love about um, that culture is that the an understanding of intelligence is not based on sort of where you start when you're born. We tend to love prodigies in this country. We tend to love kids who, you know, walk up to a violin and can suddenly play a sonata or walk up to a piano and, you know, suddenly play something and we put them on YouTube and we hold them up as, you know, these wonderful examples of talent. But in places like Korea and many other uh, countries, an understanding of intelligence is based not only on some, you know, actual innate talent, but also effort. Um, Intelligence does not mean just where you start when you're born or where you start genetically. It's, It's a combination of that and effort. And I think that we really need to get back to that. I think parents who understand that, um, effort is at least 50%, if not more, of where our kids need to be focused um, and really put our actions where that belief lies. We, we tend to say these things to kids, oh, you have to work hard and pull yourself up, that kind of thing. But then we turn around and praise them for the things that come easily to them. We praise them and say, oh, my gosh, you got an A on that math test and you hardly had to study. Well, that's the exact opposite kind of praise we should be giving kids. Praising kids for hardly having to study for anything teaches them that we only value them for the things that come easily. Uh, so really thinking about the words that come out of our mouth and how we're, what we're saying when we praise our children uh, for the work that they do, um, we really need to be careful about that. We need to start thinking a little bit more about the work that goes into learning um, rather than, you know, like I said, that product that they bring home and we stick on the refrigerator, which, P.S., we need to stop doing that. <laughs> no more <laughs> report cards on the refrigerator. Jessica Leahy, the book is The Gift of Failure, 
How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Jessica, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. I've had a great time. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 